This is Dr. Stan here on Radio Liberty tonight, coming to you on KFER 89.9 FM on your radio dial and broadcasting from the hills overlooking beautiful and picturesque Monterey Bay. We are the voice of the Central Coast. Well, this evening we're going to have have a uh, special interview a little later in, in the evening, but we wanted to start out talking a little bit about the President's inaugural address, because I think if you listen to what uh, President Clinton said, uh, you're going to have an idea what lies ahead for America. And let me read you the, the first few paragraphs of the inaugural address, because they have real meaning. The words have meaning, as, as, as Rush Limbaugh says. And he starts out with this remark, my fellow citizens, today we celebrate the mystery of American renewal. This ceremony is held in the depths of winter, but by the words we speak and the faces that we show the world, we force the spring, a spring reborn in the world's oldest democracy that brings forth the vision and courage to reinvent America. Now, if you listen to what he's saying, he's, he's referring to America as the world's oldest democracy. Is it that Bill Clinton doesn't know that America is a republic and not a democracy? Or is it that he doesn't want the American people to know that America is a republic and not a democracy? After all, philosophers writing at the time when America was being created as a republic, as a republican form of government, said that democracies are only a temporary form of government. They only last until such time as people decide and find that they can vote themselves into the public treasury. That had been known from the days of ancient Greece. Plato wrote about it in the Republic. He said, democracy doesn't work. That's why the founding fathers of America said, we don't want a democracy in America. Now, for those of you who are students or who are interested in, in checking out what we're going to say, I'd suggest that you get the tenth of the Federalist Papers. You know, I'd studied uh, American history and American government for 25 years uh, just as an amateur historian until somebody told me to read the tenth of the Federalist Papers, one written by James Madison, where he talked about democracy. What did Madison say? The man who actually was instrumental in creating the Constitution. Why, James Madison said this, Democracies are air spectacles of turmoil and contention. Democracies are air incompatible with personal liberty and private property and are usually in sh as short in their lives as they are violent in their deaths. That was the feeling of the men who created America. And yet, Bill Clinton, our new president, either doesn't know or doesn't want you to know that America is a republic and not a democracy, a nation of law written on, per on laws that are permanent and can only be changed by amending the Constitution. That's the difference between a democracy and a republic. In a, in a republican form of government, you have a nation of law. You have division of power so that the, the uh, legislation is done by the legislature and it is overlooked by the... Uh, courts to make sure that it doesn't violate the law of the land, and the law of the land is the Constitution of the United States, and you can tell what the Constitution says by reading the meaning of the founding fathers of the nation, and that was the Federalist Papers, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence. 
Now, that, that's what the courts were supposed to do, was to interpret the law, not to make law, not to be political activists, not to say that the law was whatever ju judges said it was, because when you do that, you, you undermine the whole concept of, of a society. After all, I don't know how many, <clears throat> how many of you remember seeing that wonderful film uh, on Nuremberg. It, I think it was entitled Nuremberg, and it had Spencer Tracy and... and um, uh, Bert Lancaster in it, but it was the story of the, the judges in Germany who violated the law because they wanted the German experiment in, in society to, to work. And it <clears throat> really dealt with the judges who made the decisions to sterilize people with mental defects and to allow them to be taken off of the gas chambers. And the chief German judge was, was played by Bert Lancaster. And the, the whole story was the story of how the, the, the judges compromised their position. And in the end of the um, movie, why Burt Lancaster, the chief German judge, has been condemned to jail, and he asked to see the American judge, who was played by Spencer Tracy. And the German judge says, I, I, I have the greatest respect for you as a jurist, referring, speaking to the American judge, but I want you to understand, you must understand why we did what we did. We weren't bad people. We just wanted the, the New Reich the Third Reich, to be successful. We wanted to make a better society, and to do that, why we, we had to, to modify uh, the rules as they were. We had to sacrifice certain people for the common good. It was necessary to do evil to accomplish good. And Spencer Tracy said, well, I can't understand that. You have no justification because you have betrayed the law. You have betrayed the concepts of justice. <clears throat> Well, that's what happens when, when judges begin passing laws. But we had a nation with a division of power. We had a nation which was not a democracy. That's why we had the indirect election of senators, not by the people, but by the various state legislatures. That's why we have uh, the electoral college, so that the people do not elect the president. The electors elect the president. The only people we were supposed to elect were the congressmen, and they were to be our representatives and you can see how well that system works today with a degree of control over the media so that the people never know how their congressman has voted. <clears throat> and the year that I ran for Congress, 98.6% uh, of all congressional incumbents were reelected. <clears throat> so we have evolved from the Republican concept, a nation of law under the Constitution, into the Democratic concept, which Bill Clinton envisions. Let me read to you again his opening statement. My fellow citizens, today we celebrate the mystery of American renewal. This ceremony is held in the depth of winter, but by the words we speak and the faces we show the world, we force the spring. A spring reborn in the world's oldest democracy that brings forth the vision and courage to reinvent America. Reinvent America? What's wrong with the old America, the America that I grew up in uh, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, America that, that believed in God and believed in traditional values and believed in the family and believed in hard work and believed that, that if you worked hard, you could get ahead? Well, why, why of course, we've changed from that. Now, oh, people are entitled, uh, first of all, to charity and then to welfare. And now we call it in entitlements. People are entitled to the government taking care of them from the cradle to the grave. 
and we have government providing uh, AFDC for children. Uh, we we have the government uh, regulating children. We have social workers who can come into the ha homes and take the children away from their parents. Uh, we accept that it is the responsibility of the federal government to provide for the people from the cradle to the grade, grave, from each according to their ability to each according to their need. And we have accepted the basic Marxist concept. That's the reason we're in so much trouble today. Uh, people don't understand that we have moved from a free society into a partially Marxist or socialist society. And people do not understand where we're headed. Most Americans have never been allowed to know what George Bernard Shaw said in his classic book, An Intelligent Woman's Guide to Socialism and Capitalism. Or perhaps it's capitalism and socialism. It's one of the two. And in the last page of the book, in the appendix, he says this. When I say socialism, I mean a system uh, of equality or nothing. You will be forcibly, forcibly fed and housed and clothed, whether you liked it or not. And if you're found unworthy of all of our efforts, it may be necessary to put you to death in a kindly manner, of course. But while you're allowed to live, you will live well. That is the philosophy of the socialists. That's the philosophy of George Bernard Shaw, who is the ideal of the socialists who are working at every level of our government today to bring about a welfare state. And the problem with America is not that we need to reinvent it. We need to turn back to America's traditional concepts. Now, when Mr. Clinton, President Clinton, begins talking about where he is going in a, in a, with our society, he's talking about the necessity for a national industrial policy to get the economy moving, to coordinate our, our great corporations. A national industrial policy is what they had with state capitalism in Benito Mussolini's Italy, and what they had with uh, state capitalism in Hitler's Germany. In other words, the government working in concert with the great capitalists to control industry, to provide jobs. But a government that can control industry and, and provide jobs must be able to control the populace. And that's why the big move is on towards gun control in America. That's why the move is going to be towards ever-increased taxation and regulation, towards changing our money, towards changing us, towards a casteless society. And that is the timely vision of this new world that we seem to be moving into under our new leadership. Well, this evening I have a <laughs> I have a special tape that I'm going to play for you, and I hope it turns out all right. I haven't had a chance to listen to it. But I've been promising you <clears throat> that we would sometime very soon have an opportunity to listen to the man who was the mentor of the new president of the United States. Now, you all know Bill Clinton's history born uh, in, in uh, I believe it was Arkansas, and eventually he went to Georgetown University. Uh, this is where he took his college training, <clears throat> and there he was under the tutelage of a man named Carol Quigley. And Carol Quigley was a professor of history, he was an economist, he was a um, in, into anthropology, he was a brilliant individual, uh, probably you know, one of the great minds of our time, a dedicated liberal. But he stumbled onto a series of secret societies. He ran into a man named Zimmern. 
And Zimmern, oh, I guess it was somewhere in the 30s, told him that he had been part of a secret society in England. <clears throat> and that before the First World War, they had mobilized England to become an ally with France and to go to war with Germany. And immediately after the First World War, they turned on France and became an ally of Germany, <clears throat> and they were working to build up Adolf Hitler. And this so intrigued Professor Quigley that Professor Quigley spent 30 years of his life researching the secret societies to understand the forces behind um, government, the forces really behind those, those people who controlled government, both <clears throat> in our nation, in England, and throughout the world. And so he wrote a series of books, and you hear him talking about those books this evening, uh, the first book, The Anglo-American Establishment, uh, <laughs> what he ran into when he actually tried to get that, uh, uh, that book published. Uh, we're going to give you an insight into the man who was named by the President of the United States, Bill Clinton, as the man who, who formed his attitude, uh, his uh, attitude towards the world. In his acceptance speech, when he was nominated by the Democratic Party to become the President of the United States, Bill Clinton said, there are two people who have molded my outlook on the world. One was John Fitzgerald Kennedy, and the other was my professor at Georgetown University, Carol Quigley. Well, tonight we're going to play a tape of an interview with Carol Quigley made somewhere probably in the early 1970s, not too long before his death. The tape has never been played uh, on any radio station. <clears throat> to my knowledge, in America today, I don't know anybody else who has ever heard this other than the few people that I've given copies to. I went to Georgetown University uh, in about 1980, because Carol Quigley was one of those people who really intrigued me. I'd never heard of Bill Clinton at the time, but Carol Quigley was a clue to understanding the secret societies working behind the scenes. And as I went through his papers, it was quite obvious nobody had been ever through them before. They were in a couple of great big cardboard boxes, totally unorganized. Uh, and here was a man who obviously in his entire life had been very, very organized. But Carol Quigley, uh, Carol Quigley's papers were there. Uh, just um, mismatched. I organized them, and at the bottom of one of the boxes, I came across this tape uh, with his wife's permission. I actually purchased the tape from her with the thought of using it in the motion picture we were making at the time. In fact, I bought a film crew to Washington, D.C., specifically to interview Mrs. Quigley so she would tell you some of the things that are on this tape. And after going to uh, Washington, D.C. with a nine-man film crew, it believe me, at a tremendous personal expense, <clears throat> And we, at that time, did interview um, uh, General Albert Wedemeyer and several other people. But when I contacted Mrs. Quigley, she was just a little withdrawn, and she said, Well, Doctor, I'm, I'm terribly sorry. I know I told you I would give you a personal interview, but I have been advised not to allow you to interview me. You see, I'm a writer, and uh, my publisher is Macmillan. Now, that may not mean much to the listeners today, but after you heard the tape, perhaps you'll understand why Mrs. Quigley was fearful, was frankly afraid to talk to me or to have a filmed interview to give the background behind the fact that Macmillan Publishing House in America had specifically suppressed, censored, uh, <laughs> actually destroyed the plates to Professor Quigley's book so it couldn't be reprinted, so people would not know who was really working behind the scenes. To control our society. So uh, let's uh, let's see if we can find uh, Professor Quigley here. Uh, just a moment while we're uh, while we're actually getting this organized here, and we'll be with you in just a moment. 
back with Professor Carol Quigley, the mentor of President, our present president of the United States, Bill Clinton. And here we are, hopefully uh, by electronic miracle, we will bring you Professor Quigley, uh, the mentor of uh, the President of the United States. At least, hopefully, we will. Let's see if we're going to get him here. Well, electronic miracles don't always work quite as marvelously as we'd like to see them. Let's see how we're doing. Could you believe that perhaps Dr. Professor Quigley didn't want to be on our program this evening? Well, I'll tell you what. I think maybe we'll just hold off on this for the time being, and we'll open up our call our lines for callers. Right for being a communist sympathizer, because no. Paulus Lamont was the chief financial sponsor of all kinds of Soviet friendship things and so forth. And you remember he was summoned before a congressional committee flatly refused to answer any questions, took the case, I believe, to the Supreme Court, but I may be wrong, and won his case. This is the son or the father? This is the, this is the son, Corliss Lamont. Now, this is Professor Quigley, so that you'll know who we're talking, and he's talking to a, a reporter from the, from the Washington Post. Yes, now they ascribed it to this, these are communist sympathizers. They're for world domination. They are anti-capitalists. Uh, they want to destroy America. And, well, a number of other things, which to me don't, I can't see this. And Dr. Carroll Quigley knows all about it and has told the world. Yes, and, and, yes, and he proves everything that we've said. But then they right. constantly misquote me to this effect, that they financed the Bolsheviks. I can see no evidence from anything I've ever seen that there was any financing of the Bolsheviks by the group I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. You see, and to give you one example of what he says in here, and they'll all say this. Milner did go to Moscow in 1917. And I have the exact dates that he was there from his diaries and everything. I think you make that point in here. Oh, oh you have that. Oh, right. well, then you know that. Now, the professor is talking about his book, so you know the background. Milner was one of the disciples of Cecil Rhodes, who created the secret societies. You see. I haven't had a chance, and who, nobody will finance me. I can't get a nickel. I have to save my own money. Do you see? The Bircher should finance you. Well, they don't have any money much, I don't think. You know, he's living off peanuts, I think. Uh, and uh, so, therefore, uh, if I wanted to check this, but if, as I understand it, he came back and told the cabinet, don't have to worry about the Eastern Front, the Russians are going to go on fighting. Right. And within a month, they had the Kerensky Rebellion. Right. Now, they didn't get the Bolshevik re uh, Revolution until October. Mm -hmm. So he was there in fe February, Kerensky is March, Lenin is October. What these people say is that when he was there, he gave a million dollars to the Bolsheviks, and the Bolsheviks took over within a month. You see. Well, well now, when did you first become aware that you had been quoted in these books? Did someone uh, get a fan letter? Uh, no, people uh, wrote to me and said uh, this. Thank now, you for what did they say? Did they say things like "thank you for exposing"? Were you a reluctant hero? No, they said, uh, "Do you know about this?" They were usually ex-students. Ah. Now, this one, I believe, I got. When someone in New Hampshire, where my brother is a voter, when they he got one. Three voters, right? He got one, and jokingly he said, I used to be known as Dr. Quigley, the chairman of the school committee of this town that he lives in, Hudson, New Hampshire, and all of this, the man who built the local high school, which he did, you see, and so forth. 
And uh, he says, now I'm known as Carol Quigley's brother. He, of course, he's kidding. Sure. But he sent me it. And so I found it then. What was your reaction? Well, I was, I was mad as hell. Yeah. Just like I was mad at the other thing. Because these people are not only misrepresenting me, yeah. they're making me out to be, I think, an idiot. They're saying I said all kind of things I didn't say. I think they're making you out to be a hero. I mean, not... Well, it, you see, it varies. Originally, the John Birch periodical had me as a great guy for revealing this, but then they became absolutely sour, and they're now denouncing me that I'm a member of the establishment. And because I, you're repudiating it? I don't know. You don't know what? I don't know, really. I'm baffled. I'm baffled by the whole thing. I don't know why McMillan acted the way it did. I don't know why I can think these guys... What he's basically talking about is the fact that his book was quoted by many of the right-wing organizations in America, and he's very unhappy that they said that he said that uh, uh, these people were financing Bolshevism. From the University of Nevada, I believe it was, in Reno, I think. And he was very angry over what was going on there over this. Now this is in the 71? No, this would be 73. 73, so it came to your attention. Oh, when did, the, no, this came in the election of 72. 72. Okay. The spring of 72. Okay, fine. So it was right after it came out. Yeah, I think. Okay. Then in 73, somebody called you. In 73, somebody called me. Now I can give you the exact dates on this if I can get to the papers, but I don't have them anyway. And he wanted me uh, to do something to stop the influence that this book was having in Nevada, particularly as promoting anti-Semitism, because there's a group of people who are using this book, and they're total nuts. I get letters from them all the time. I can show you some of them if you want. Complete nuts. Who claim that this is a Jewish conspiracy that is part of the same thing as the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which we now know as a Zionist Russian police forgery, of 1905 or 1904, do you see? Mm -hmm. And that this is the same thing as the Illuminati. And the Illuminati were founded in 1776 by a Bavarian named, I think it's White Weisskopf, or something like that. And that the Illuminati are a branch of the Masons, and that they took over the Masons, do you see? And uh, the whole thing is a nightmare. Right. That all secret societies is the same secret society. Now, this was established by nuts uh, for hundreds of years. Uh, there were people who said the Society of the Cincinnati in the American Revolution, of which George Washington was one of the shining lights, was a branch of the Illuminati and was a secret society. And therefore, that's why the Masons built the monument in Alexandria to Washington. Not because he was the first president of the United States, because he was the Mason and the head of the Illuminati in this country and therefore was the one of the founders of the Society of Cincinnati, do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it becomes, you can't believe it. Now, the, these same conspirators are the Jacobins who made the French Revolution. A woman named Nesta, N-E-S-T-A, Webster, wrote that book. To refute it, my tutor, who's a Rhodes Scholar, Crane Brinton, B-R-A-N-T-O-N, wrote his doctoral dissertation called The Jacobins, in which he refutes her. Do you see? Right. Now, I think at the end of his life, Brenton probably came to feel that he was wrong, that there was some secret society involved in the Jacobins. Mm. And a student of his named Elizabeth Eisenstein, who's a marvelous researcher, she's now a professor at American University, under Brenton wrote a doctoral dissertation on the founder of 
the Barbeuf conspiracy. The Barbeuf conspiracy was a ex- conspiracy of the extreme left, which burst out in France in 1894 or so, led by a man named Barbeuf who was executed for it. But the man behind it was a descendant of Michelangelo named Buonarroti, because Buonarroti, uh, Michelangelo's family name was Buonarroti. Look, if you can, at Eisenstein's book, which was published by Harvard, a doctoral dissertation, which shows that Buonarroti founded many secret societies. Do you see? Mm-hmm. One of them was the Bob Birth people who are now being praised to the skies by all the neo-Marxists, like Marcus and uh, others, you see, as the great heroes, because they tried to change the French Revolution from a middle-class, bourgeois, capitalist revolution, constitutional revolution, into a communist revolution. Now, Buonarroti is also the founder of the Carbonari, of which Mazzini was the head in the 1840s, which united Italy in the 1860s. Do you see? So, as if you start with Buonarroti, which as far as I can see is 1893 and 1893, 1793, 1794, I think you can trace a connection down through these various secret societies which culminate in the uh, Mazzini Carbonari. Now, now, just let me briefly comment. Uh, what, what he's basically saying is there are secret societies and their conspiracies, and these were around shortly before the turn of the century. And here's a man who ought to know he's, he's researched secret societies. This is the man, remember, that Bill Clinton mentioned as the man who shaped his attitude, uh, formed his, his ideas about the world, along with J.F. Kennedy. And Carol Quigley, even though poo-pooing uh, the right wing that thinks there's a conspiracy, is now telling you about Babouf and his conspiracy, the Mazzini and the Carbonaries, and he's beginning to take you into some of the conspiracies. So let's go on now with uh, Professor Quigley. For example, uh, I'll say one thing. Okay. Italy was able to get free from Austria because only because France defeated Austria. Why did France do that? Nobody can say why. It wasn't to France's interest. And yet France declared war in 1859 on Austria and at the Battle of Magenta and Solferino defeated and suddenly made a peace treaty without freeing all of Italy and the reason we're told they suddenly made the peace treaty without was because the king, the king, the emperor, this is Napoleon III, was so sick into the sight of the blood. Do you see? Now, why did he do this? He did this because in 1868, a Carbonaro threw a bomb at him. This Carbonaro was arrested, executed, but before he was executed, the emperor went to his cell, as I understand it, and the Carbonaro gave him the secret sign of a fellow Carbonaro because the emperor of France, in the, who became, was elected president of France in 1848, seized the throne in 51 and proclaimed a new Napoleonic empire and was overthrown by the Germans in 71. So he was the emperor for... Uh, 70, really, for 20 years, do you see? Mm-hmm. But he had been a refugee from France because he tried to make a revolt in France, I think it was 1829. 
And as a refugee, he joined the Carbonari Secret Society.
he was a private policeman in the Chartres match on Parliament in London in 1848, the year in which he was elected President of France. Here he's saying that a, a president of France is part of a secret society. And he, <laughs> uh, you see, you see how this worked? And the, the revolutionary gave the emperor or the king of France the secret sign to show that he was part of the conspiracy. Uh, it's amazing. You're never going to hear these things any other place. And yet there are professors, there are people who've written about these. And I can give you the names of several books, in fact, one bitten by the man who is presently the head of the Smithsonian, a member, a former member of the Board of the Council on Foreign Relations, who's written extensively on this aspect of the conspiracy. In other words, the Carbonari, Babuff's conspiracy, the Jacobins, but he never tells you what the Council on Foreign Relations is all about. Incidentally, Bill Clinton is part of the Council. He's a member of the Bilderbergers and the Trilateralists. So, Bill understands how it's all worked. He, he got this from his professor, who is deeply steeped in the tradition of secret societies. So, on with Professor Quigley. The mysterious figure, do you see? Mm -hmm. uh, so, what I'm summing up is this. I do think that there is probably a continuous sequence of secret societies from Buonarroti, Babu, Babeuf Conspiracy, which is 1894-95, through the Carbonari Unification of Italy, which would be 61, 1861. I cannot see anything since then. It may exist. I haven't really studied it. Mm -hmm. But I cannot see any connection between the Masons and the Illuminati, mm -hmm. founded in Bavaria in 1776. And I can't see any connection between them and uh, and uh, Buonarroti. Well, now, but that's what these people are saying. It's all one. Right. And some of them say it goes back to Noah building the ark. One thing that it seems to me that this conspiracy theory of history is appealing because well, it's so simple. It's so simple. It explains everything that is unexplainable. It's and, going wrong. And if you raise one point that doesn't fit, they say, "Ah, see how clever the conspiracy is." Yes. Now that they've I want to show so you well. something. This is what they start. They start by showing you a one-dollar bill, mm -hmm. and they say, "Why is there a, tr a pyramid with an eye over it?" Do you see? Mm -hmm. This is the symbol of the secret society. Now, if you ask people, Which secret Any the secret society, according to them, there's only one, you uh, see. That's right. right. Now, the secret society that's gone through generations. Through, through centuries. Yes, yes. Now, if you ask the United States government why it is there, mm -hmm. they have great difficulty explaining. And they mostly come up with, it's, a, it's the Masons, Masonic symbol. But then you say, why should the Masonic symbol be on the American dollar bill, mm -hmm. and they have no explanation. So there is something. If you look at this monument in Alexandria mm -hmm. to Washington, it is the pyramid. Mm -hmm. You see, now there's no the eye over it is the light. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You see. Mm -hmm. So uh, I could go further into this, but won't have to because this symbol is at least uh, six thousand years old, and I can give you the history of the four thousand B.C. It has nothing to do with the Masons. Mm -hmm. But uh, the trouble is that every Mason knows that that's a Masonic symbol, and the reason it's on the back of the bell it was because put on the back of the Great Seal of the United States back in about 1790, something of that sort. Uh, it was put onto the dollar bill under the direction of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was a, a 33rd degree Mason. And that's why it's on the back of the dollar bill, because FDR put it there, 
uh, symbolizing the Masonic uh, control and domination um, uh, of our government and its influence at that time. So let's go on with Professor Quigley now. Now, you see, he raises all these points and then he says, well, there's really nothing to it, but maybe there is something to it. Uh, notice how he papoos on one side and then says, well, maybe there's something to it. I mean, after all, the pyramid really doesn't mean anything. It goes back 6,000 years, but then masonry claims to go back 6,000 years too to the building time of the building of the temple, in fact, to the time of ancient Babylon. Uh, maybe the nations adopted it, you see. But it has nothing. But I will not go into that. That's a totally different story. Okay, so this man from Nevada, or this person from Nevada called, called me up and said they were having a hard time with the anti-Semites using this book as an argument against Wall Street, against bankers, against Jews, against communists, and everything else. And they wanted me to debate with this fellow who got in touch with me, who was a professor at the university. Who believed it. Uh, oh, oh, no, he doesn't believe it. He was trying to get rid of it. The same way the fellow who called me from Brigham Young was trying to stop this hysteria, which was sweeping that mountain area, apparently. Right. And so they said, would you debate uh, Gary Allen and Larry Abram? And uh, I said, well, I'd rather not. Frankly, he says, well, we need your help. And I says, well, are they both going to be debating me? And he says, no, there's a doctor so-and-so here. Uh, Larry, uh, Larry Abram uh, puts out a, uh, a newsletter today called The Insider Report, and he and Gary Allen had written a book called None Dare Call It Conspiracy. Had seven million copies printed, distributed all over America. An interesting study in thought control today is to try to find a copy in any of the used bookstores, that they, and most of them all have paperback books, try to get a copy of Gary Allen's None Dare Call It Conspiracy, probably one of the most widely, probably the most widely uh, circulated book in America uh, during the 1960 uh, uh, period. Uh, Seven million copies printed. So I think that was the figure that was put out at the time. Uh, and yet that book has literally disappeared. But Gary Allen has since died. Uh, Larry Abraham, uh, we'll, we'll have him on the program here some night. Or Larry Abram, uh, good patriot. He's been around for a long time in the battle. His uh, newsletter, The Insider Report, really deals with the Council on Foreign Relations. But uh, let's get back to Carol Quigley here. We are in the uh, early 70s. Who will uh, debate with you. And he is, I think, a uh, medical doctor. I'm not certain of that. But he was Jewish. And what he was interested in was the anti-Semitism part He's of it. He's going to debate on your team, on your side. On my side. Right. And they said it's going to be absolutely the strictest thing. We'll be on the air for an hour. We'll be hooked up on telephone through the country. I will be the coordinator, said this fellow of this, and it'll be rigorous. You will, must stay on the subject or I will stop you. There must be no personality attacks or I will stop you. You can each talk for 10 minutes, I think it is, or five minutes it could have been, and then when each of the four has talked, I think it was for 10 minutes, then each will have the right to have a five-minute rebuttal or something you see. Mm -hmm. Now, in the course of it, I soon discovered that Gary Allen didn't know up from down. Yeah. But Larry A... No, but Larry Abram was immensely well informed. He knew all about corporation finance and bankers and who were their partners. He knew he's tremendous. I how, think. How, how did you find out he, talking to people? I found out in the debate. Oh, okay, that's what I was going to ask. You did go to the debate. Yeah, Larry Allen simply repeated everything that was in here. Right. 
when I put in my rebuttal and said these various things, he then started pulling at information at me, some of it I had never heard of. Now, I don't know everything. And the new book that's out now, published by the Buckley, I guess it's the Bill Buckley Press, Arlington House, I suppose it's Bill Buckley, I'm not sure of that, called The Bolsheviks and Wall Street. Oh, we got to go to lunch. The Bolsheviks and Wall Street has lots of things in there that I don't, didn't know. Mm -hmm. I can stop this. Yeah, well, I talk, told you that. Do you want to put down there? Yeah. I generally would think that any conspiracy theory of history is nonsense for the simple reason that most of the conspiracies that we know about seem to me to be the conspiracies of losers, uh, people who have been defeated on the platforms, let's say, the historical platform of the public happenings. The Ku Klux Klan was the, uh, their arguments and their uh, point of view had been destroyed and defeated in the Civil War. Well, because they're not prepared to accept that, they form a conspiracy, you see, to fight against it in an underground way. And those people who could fight up in the open do so. Those who can't go underground, and it seems to me this is essentially what conspiracy, the Palestinian Liberation Army, would be a similar thing, you see. I think, on the whole, they're pretty well a group that, uh, you know, has not got really very much, uh, and so they have to be terrorists. And just well, if, if I could play the devil's advocate, I think... Yeah. If, talking about the international banking conspiracy, they yeah. have not lost out. They simply don't want any attention. They don't want to draw yeah. the, well, the ire of the people. That. An argument there that if people are doing something that's very successful, uh, they would frequently appear that uh, they would hope that other people won't know what they're doing like uh, trade secrets, uh, they, you know, Coca-Cola, we're not supposed to know what is the secret formula that makes that such an attractive drink. So in a sense, the international, the bankers, I think there's not the slightest doubt. In fact, I do say this in my book, they tried to make banking into a mystery. They tried to make the gold standard into something which is very, very complicated and isn't. It's really quite simple once you diagram it, like I do, and put it on the blackboard. So. Uh, we're dealing with two different things here, however. I don't think this is a conspiracy. This is just secrecy. Because something secret doesn't mean it's a conspiracy. It doesn't mean it's a right. conspiracy. There's lots of things. We have trade secrets. I mean, uh, I can see where a labor union might be violently object to you knowing what the salary of uh, their uh, leaders are. I never knew what John L. Lewis's salary was in the United Mine Workers, and if I did, I'd probably been damn angry. Now, now what, I want you to think about what you just heard. And what Professor Quigley is basically saying, what Professor Quigley is basically saying, is that um, <laughs> the uh, the bankers don't want us to know what they're doing. They don't want us to understand banking, and they don't want us to understand the gold standard. Uh, it's secret. Well, you may think that it's uh, not a conspiracy. Uh, maybe you want to don't want to call it a conspiracy. The thing is that there there is an organized effort to confuse us about banking to confuse us about gold, to confuse us about the fact that our money really is worthless, is only a fiat money system, and if you look at the dollars that you have, that uh, it says uh, in the right lower left corner, this note is um, legal tender for all debts, public and private, period. It used to say it's redeemable and lawful money at any branch of the United States Treasury, uh, but it doesn't say that anymore. In other words, they've kept it a secret. Professor Quigley understands that it's a secret uh, that they don't want you to know. The international bankers have a secret, and that's what he lays out in his book, and that's why his book is so important. His book, his opus, his life work, 
Tragedy and Hope, A History of the World in Our Time. And now, back to Carol Quigley. Well, he's been damn angry. You see, and yet, and that's a secret, but I don't think that is what we mean by a conspiracy. Right. Now, on the other hand, there certainly in history have been conspiracies. There's no doubt about this. Really? They're damn difficult to establish. You know, we spent a long, long time trying to find out whether there was a conspiracy regarding the assassination of President Lincoln. And they're still debating about it. They, they, and they, I suppose they put to death four people, don't you know that? They're debating about uh, Jack Kennedy being assassinated, or even Martin Luther King. Now, that's out, you know, in the open sure. again. So there must be such things as conspiracies, and I can see where a conspiracy could lead to an assassination, something like that, which is a particular episode happening. But I certainly can't accept or even give real consideration to this conspiracy theory of history which sees a conspiracy which goes on for decades or even centuries and which is more or less worldwide, you see. And which causes everything. And we, Oh, yeah, well, definitely as far as it causes everything. Yes, I agree. That, that is nonsense, it seems to me. Because any organization, take a fraternity or anything, when the personnel change, the thing changes. If I were to go back now, I had a student went back to a, a Princeton graduate school to apply for admission two weeks ago came back and told me what it was like. It's totally different from when I was there. Well, that's not the result of conspiracy. That's the result of the people that were there have retired or gone elsewhere and new ones have come and they have different attitudes and different values and so forth and so forth. And uh, so I think that even if you did have a conspiracy going on, or let us say even uh, some of these things like the Masons, if they are secret and if they are conspiracies, I don't know anything about them. I doubt if they are. Then it seems to me that they're bound to change in the course of time so that 40 years later, 50 years later, almost certainly they're not going to be trying to do the same things with the same methods well, as earlier. So I think anybody who talks about conspiracy theory of history, the burden of proof rests on them to produce decisive evidence and not simply odd parallels. Mm -hmm. and of course, of course they, uh, Gary Allen's book is saying that you, you have produced the decisive evidence. I mean, yeah. I think that well, he's applied it to a totally wrong group. I wasn't talking about everybody in Wall Street. Right. As a matter of fact, when he says Wall Street, he's talking about a very complex structure made up, I suppose, of hundreds of partnerships and companies and corporations. And they're not only trying to screw us, which I think they are, and trying to screw the world, I'm sure they are, but they're trying to screw each other. Right. So when he says Wall Street, then when he finds somebody that he calls a famous Wall Street man that I never heard of, or that he's some insignificant company, or something like this, and he says, this is part of the conspiracy. I'll give you, I'll put it much more specific than that. Abel Harriman, or, uh, no, not Abel Harriman, uh, Forrestal it was, was Brown Brothers, was he? Right. Brown Brothers. Yeah. All right. I don't see Brown Brothers as being part of any conspiracy in which, let us say, J.P. Morgan was involved. Because I never hear of anything in which they were jointly working on any corporation or floating securities and everything. Now, these things may exist. I never saw them or found them. So if somebody says, well, here's Brown Brothers doing this, or they say, here's Jim Forrestal establishing a unified defense service by putting the uh, Navy and the Army together and having three services under it and so forth, so forth, and he's doing that as part of a Wall Street conspiracy, to me, there's at least two links missing there. First, is he doing that because he was a member of Brown Brothers? They don't demonstrate that. Secondly, is this got anything to do with anything that J.P. Morgan or anybody else 
wanted. And of course, Morgan was finished when he did that. So, but whoever would, and mostly it was the, the DuPonts took over a lot of the DuPont, uh, a lot of Morgan stuff, and the Rockwells took over most of it. But I don't think that, uh, he got links constantly missing and assumptions which aren't true, that they're a solid group cooperating together. How has this sort of publicity changed your life? Have you have you enjoyed it because it may have sparked a little debate? No, no, I didn't enjoy it at all, and I'll be perfectly frank and mercenary about it. As long as I had no book to sell, what good did it do me? It blackened my reputation among scholarly historians. They're going to say, oh, that's one of those nuts. Right-wing, yeah, right-wing nut. And they're likely to say that because I'm at a Catholic university where there's lots of right-wing nuts, you know. I assume... I'll keep that up. Yeah, I would assume that... Uh, Bill Buckley, who some people would regard as a right-wing nut, or this brother-in-law of his, of his you remember, uh, who's much more able, I think, much more right-wing now, is that I forget. They both wrote jointly a book on Joe McCarthy, defending Joe McCarthy, you see. His name also begins with B, and I should know it, but I don't. Brent Bazell is the name. Uh, they, a lot of people say they are right-wingers because they're Catholics. They're defending Joe McCarthy probably because they're Catholics, do you see? And so forth. And so it doesn't do me any good being a Catholic university where I'm trying to be an objective historian and say exactly what happened, if I can find out, and give it the proper amount of weight. Now, this is important. In my book, which is 1,348 pages, you've got 15 pages. I haven't counted them, but it certainly isn't 20. Dealing with this particular thing, and it's the round table, Milner, Rhodes Trust thing. It's the Atlantic establishment. It has nothing to do with what these people are talking about at all. And they come up with uh, Shift and other names, uh, and mostly their Jewish names they're coming up with in Wall Street, whom they say gave millions of dollars to the Bolsheviks. I don't see any connection here at all. Other than your per- your professional reputation that you perhaps worry about or fear for because of this, how about your personal life? Did it cause oh, you any no. anguish at all? Oh, no. You have not gotten any crank phone calls? Or- oh, uh, I get phone calls. Uh, in fact, I've uh, even out at the farm, I get people calling from Texas, and they used to get many more. And they're always long distance, and they always can talk forever. I suppose they got oil wells paying for it or something. I don't know what it is. <laughs> but I've had people call me from California and from... Uh, Texas. I think I had somebody call me from Mexico City. What do they want to talk about? And Florida. Yeah, they want to. Well, I, I has one. I had one that went on and on and on up at the farm, and I was trying to write right. on another book. I was going to ask. You dealing what? with work weapons. And that's one reason I go up there every chance I can get. Right. Another thing, I rarely take calls at home or I'm at home. My wife always answers the phone. If it's someone, you know, she can keep uh, say that I'm out of town, even if I'm not, I suppose. But, uh, I had a fellow call me from, I think it was Texas, and he talked for about 20 minutes. And I want to get back to finish a sentence I'm typing. Right. And uh, finally, I said, I'm sorry, I just can't go on talking like about this. I have got to get back to my work. He says, I got one more question. This was two years ago. One more question, Professor Quigley. Why is uh, Nelson Rockefeller a communist? <laughs> and I said, why don't you call him up and ask him? I said, I don't know. I said, I don't think he is a communist. But if you know he is, and you want to know why he is, call him up. <laughs> now, this is the kind of thing you get. Now, this is annoying in a way, but it doesn't interfere with my personal life in any way. Okay. Well, let me comment briefly on what he's said. 
uh, he talks about Milner and the Rhodes Trust, uh, and, and basically, of course, the original impetus for the organization that he studied was Cecil Rhodes, who gained the wealth of the diamond and gold mines of South Africa to establish the Rhodes Trust, and then to establish the Rhodes Scholarship so they could bring young men from all over the world to Oxford to train them in the concept of the New World Order and indoctrinate them in the social, socialist concepts of Cecil Rhodes' teacher, um, a man named John Ruskin. And, of course, John Ruskin was a disciple of Rousseau, and if you read Ruskin's work, he talks about how all of his concepts came from Rousseau and the Enlightenment and the socialist ideas of Rousseau and Voltaire. Uh, the problem is that many of the people who pick up on this material then immediately want to take it off and say, well, it's a Jewish conspiracy, which it is not. In fact, this isn't what he's talking about at all. And unfortunately, there are people who will try to throw you off the track of what's going on today and take you into anti-Semitism. Now, we're about halfway through the tape by Cecil Rhodes. I'm going to uh, um, leave the uh, lines open for just a moment or two while we... Uh, if anybody would like to call in here and tell me if you want to hear the rest of this tape, really, the rest of the tape tells about how the plates were destroyed, how the book was actively suppressed, and how he actually found out what had happened to his manuscript, uh, and why the Macmillan actually refused to uh, distribute the book. So if it's interesting enough to you, uh, it's fascinating to me because it's a look into history uh, many, many years ago, look into the mind of the man who influenced the present president of the United States, Bill Clinton. So if you'd like to call us at 464-8295, give me your input. Uh, we can either deal with this the rest of the uh, uh, program, or we can go into one of the other issues. We have lots of things that we can talk about tonight. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about what we have coming up next week, because next week we have some exciting programs. Uh, we have uh, uh, on Monday, Tal Brooks. Um, and we already talked to you a little bit about Tal, uh, Gus Sermos, uh, the immigration time bomb uh, on Thursday. And on Friday of next week, we're going to have John Wilkes, the libertarian candidate uh, for Congress. And he's going to be talking to us about libertarian philosophy from a Christian point of view. And it looks like we have a, a caller on line one, and we'll be taking that call in just a minute. Let me remind you, this is KFER 89.9 FM on your radio dial. This is Dr. Stan bringing you Radio Liberty two hours every evening. And we depend upon your support to keep our program on the air. Believe me, the long-distance telephone calls to bring you people from all over the country, as we did last night. Uh, Barbara, <laughs> uh, somebody else wants to hear the tape. Well, let's see. Um, oh, they just hung up. Yeah, let's see. We, we, we have two votes to hear the tape so far. And perhaps we'll uh, we'll play that during the last, next hour because I think it's vitally important that you understand the mentality of the people. Uh, oh, not on the phone, but uh, us. I'm getting messages from my producer here. Well, we're almost to the break, so let's go ahead. Um, we'll play the tape during the next hour. Hope you'll want to hear Professor Carol Quigley, professor of history at Georgetown University, mentor of Bill Clinton giving us information in the background on the society that came to dominate uh, America and Britain, indeed most of the free world. 